Brown Girl Radiance celebrates the brilliance of women of color through reflective conversations and stories. I'm your host, Pure Brown Joy. Welcome to season two of Brown Girl Radiance. This season, we are celebrating the brilliance of our forever first lady with the Michelle Obama Becoming Book Club. If you've had a chance to read the book or listen to the book, feel free to reach out to me at browngirlradiancepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at browngirlradiancepodcast and tell me which parts of the book resonated with you or inspired you. If you do, I might give you a shout out on a future episode this season. I read an opinion piece in the New York Times in May of this year that was titled The Comeback of the Century, Why the Book Endures Even in an Era of Disposable Digital Culture. This is how the writer describes the success of Michelle Obama's book. You can make a case that we owe a big part of the renaissance of the written word in recent months to her memoir, Becoming. In the first 15 days after publication last year, it sold enough copies to become the best-selling book in the United States for all of 2018. By the end of March of this year, it had sold 10 million copies and was on pace to become the best-selling memoir ever written in this country. So I'm hoping that through discussing this book, it will encourage more people to read it. Michelle's story is a beautiful American story, and anyone who reads this book can find some value or lesson in it. As a woman of color, it has so many themes and stories that resonate with me, especially as an African-American woman. I've invited another brilliant group of women to discuss this book with me throughout this season. Becoming is divided into three sections, Becoming Me, Becoming Us, and Becoming More. In the beginning, Michelle says, your story is what you have, what you will always have. It is something to own. Throughout this season, we will share our stories as we are discussing the rich narrative that Michelle Obama, who is everyone's auntie and or best friend in our head, has shared with us. Enjoy this first conversation. Very excited today uh, to jump right back into season two with Michelle Obama Becoming Book Club. And I'm very excited about the guest that I have today. You'll recognize their voice from season one. And uh, part of the reason that I wanted to have them on uh, the show, especially for the first episode, is because when I came to them and told them that I was thinking about doing an episode about uh, the book, Becoming, uh, uh, this person actually told me, oh, you could do a whole season about that. And I was like, really? But, you know, once I actually had the opportunity to listen to the audio book, 
um, which I've listened to a couple times now because it's just so rich to hear her voice, you know, sharing her story. Uh, so with that, I'm very excited to have Ivy back on episode one of, of our second season of Brown Girl Radiance podcast. So welcome back. Glad to be here and um, excited to talk about uh, Becoming. It was an amazing book. I have listened to it twice myself and very excited to be here to be a part of season two. Woo! Let's go. All right. So, um, you know, there's just so many different layers to the Becoming book, and it's kind of hard to talk about it um, in a chronological perspective because there's so much connectivity. We will start at the beginning, which is uh, with the section of the book that she titled Becoming Me. My first question is, was there anything in the early years um, of Michelle's life that resonated with you or stood out in terms of her family, her education, neighborhood, etc.? So if you haven't read the, read the book or listened, which is, like I was mentioning, is an amazing book. And um, as far as what resonated there were so many different things that resonated with me but some of the things I kind of wanted to touch on is she grew up uh like lower middle class family would you say yeah definitely she lived on top of her aunt Robbie's not on top of the house, but in an apartment <laughs> that was on the second second level of the house. And it was all four of her family members, her brother, you know, and her parents. And she had mentioned it was about 900 square feet. And I grew up in a house with two brothers and my parents in a house that was probably about 1,000 square feet. Uh, my brothers, they shared um, a room, and they were about 10 years apart, uh, bunk beds. I had my own room, obviously, because I was the only girl. The bathroom was literally right across the hall, and uh, my parents had a half bathroom, so it was very uh, close quarters. But at that time, you know, I didn't know any better. It was about, you know, the closeness of our family. And my grandmother lived on the very next street. My aunt lived on the very next street from there. So uh, her early years were very uh, enriched with a lot of family and a village raising her and neighbors being so influential in her upbringing. And I can completely relate to that because um, it was the same thing. We lived in a and a, I wouldn't say, well, it, it was the black neighborhood. I'll just say that. And, you know, my mom's friends and grandmother's friends, we all knew each other. They all were a part of my development, development and like Michelle, uh, and it's becoming me. So. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the the family, you know, was basically the cornerstone. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that a lot throughout her story. And I really also loved how Euclid Avenue, which is where she grew up, how that was kind of like an undercurrent of her story all throughout the book. Also, some, some other things that stood out to me 
when she was talking about her family is kind of, you know, the, the different ways that her, like her family story had like history, this history of, you know, resilience and, you know, talking about like, for example, her aunt Robbie, who was also her piano instructor. Uh, you, you can read about that, all about that in chapter one. Uh, her, her aunt actually sued a university, um, for discrimination. And, you know, you're talking about like pre the civil rights movement. So, um, so, you know, what a (laughs) courageous act, you know, and then even, um, just hearing the stories of her uncles and, um, her grandfathers and how they were discriminated against, um, in, in, you know, different ways as they were trying to, um, really provide a better life for their families. And so, for example, she talked about when her uh, grandfather moved from the South to the North and, you know, trying to find like a a decent job. Um, African-Americans were discriminated against. And a lot of times in the factories, they preferred to hire European immigrants. And also even if they wanted to be like an electrician or a plumber, um, they weren't allowed to have union cards. So um, just kind of hearing how that, you know, those different stories, especially when you think about like the men in her life, which you can tell she loved her dad and he was uh, extremely uh, selfless and how she even talks about like her parents and how they both started Mm -hmm. college, but then, you know, for, for various reasons, ended up not, you know, completing their degrees and choosing other paths. And even how she said, like with her dad, he ended up helping one of his younger brothers, (laughs) Um, so one of her uncles, she, he ended up helping pay for his architecture degree, you know, and, um, and she did have one uncle that she mentioned who graduated from Harvard. She didn't get into a lot of details about that, but still just kind of like, you know, understanding what that, like that time again, pre even the civil rights movement, how that impacted her, her family and, and their, you know, their, income level and their, you know, lifestyle, all of those, um, those things. But there was still kind of, again, that theme of the resilience. And- well, her grandfather, Dandy, yes, his kids, I think one of them went on to Harvard right, Law, right. Yep. Law School. Exactly. Yep. And they were all, for the most part, well accomplished. Yeah. Like her and, aunts and uncles. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, really kind of, again, like I said, that historical perspective was very, um, very interesting to me to hear. And even like thinking about uh, my family. So my parents, they actually both did go to college. Um, And again, I think it's just more like generational because my parents are, I would put them more kind of in Michelle's generation, Michelle and Barack's generation. I mean, they're, they're a little bit older than them, but still like kind of, um, you know, they, I felt like it. So while I'll speak specifically for my family, like my, my mom and my dad and most of my aunts and uncles, you know, did end up going to college and most of them actually went to HBCUs, um, as well. But I remember like, walking to like a homecoming with my mom and uh, one of the homecoming events was probably like the parade or something along those lines uh, for Tennessee State University and asking her what college my grandmother went to and then she explained to me oh like she didn't go to college here's why I mean keeping in mind that I mean my mom 
is the youngest of eight (laughs) and you know my dad's the oldest of seven so it kind of all like you know it all makes sense and I noticed too that Michelle talked about her family like you know kind of coming from a, a larger family like she had lots of aunts and uncles and just you know even when you go to certain family gatherings you're it's like okay I know I'm related to yeah. this person but some people like some people like you knew oh yeah that's my cousin that's my aunt etc but then there the more kind of layers yeah. you get into it like okay well they're telling me we're related but you know yeah, <laughs> not exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah I was double touching or something <laughs> with like I think it was probably like my third <laughs> right yeah like yeah that. so that's you know that's how it is those fat those family gatherings is like we're all here we're all family we're all related you might not know how right but it's all family oh another thing too with her dad how um how he was like the precinct captain for um the democratic party and so so basically on the weekends he would go visiting like all the different constituents which michelle was pretty young at that time and like quite frankly, didn't really enjoy said visits because it it impacted her weekend, right? You know, what, what she wanted to do. Um, but but I think, you know, that that was almost kind of like foreshadowing her, you yeah. know, her her future as um, and preparing her to be like the wife of a politician. And then um, another thing, her friendships. So like if you think about her best friend in high school, who um, was the daughter of Jesse Jackson, uh, Santita Jackson, and how, you know, um, again, experiencing, going through certain experiences with Santita, like they just wanted to go to the mall or they wanted to do this or that. And, um, but how they would quickly, you know, get, um, you know, pulled into whether it was like a a rally or a parade, (laughs) et cetera. So it's so... (laughs) and grudging right right you know so as a teenager um just experiencing all those things but at the same time still like understanding the significance like she still understood like why they were you know doing all that they did with like the push coalition and um and again i think another little element that ended up helping to prepare her for her you know her future Mm -hmm. so So moving on to our uh, next question. So one of the incidents that Michelle described from uh, from her earlier years, I believe she said she was around 10. So something that really resonated with me was she was talking about during like a family gathering. Uh, she was just enjoying a little afternoon, you know, chatting with other girls who were her age. Again, you know, distant cousins. And one of the young ladies asked her, why do you talk like a white girl? And um, and I think in my generation, sometimes I remember being asked, especially like in elementary school, a lot like, why do you talk white? Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, did you do you remember encountering that at some point, like during your youth? And also, how did you manage that um, that perception? Um, yeah, I would say that that was a question I was always asked. And to even go further than why do you talk white, it's you think you're white. So I think it had a lot, it didn't help because I was lighter complected and I didn't talk um, like 
my African-American peers, if you will. And um, I went to a white, all of the schools that I went to were white. And they did this thing uh, in the school system at the time where they divided the students up into these classes called phases. So phase five and four were your high achieving students or um, uh, say A students or gifted students. Phase three was your average or middle of the road students and phase two and one were like your, they called them at the time, uh, slower learning disability students. Mm -hmm. And I was always in the phase four and phase five classes and I typically was the only black student most of the time. So I think it's a heavy burden for a child to have to toggle between those two worlds, uh, a, a black child, I would say, because you as a child, you just want to fit in. I wanted to be with, you know, my black friends. And sometimes I felt like I didn't fit in there because we were doing different things like I was on the golf club in school. I was the only black person doing that. Or I was in the gifted classes. But then on the on the flip side of that, I didn't feel like I really fit in where I was the only black person because we didn't really have a lot in common on that side. It's like they I lived in a black neighborhood. They lived in a white neighborhood. It was, and it, you're, you're toggling back and forth, just trying to figure out where do you fit in? So when she said, why do you talk white? Um, yeah, I, I always, I always have found that such a perplexing question because it's almost like, well, so only white kids are allowed to be smart is is subconsciously that's kind of what you're saying so um I don't think I I I don't say I struggle with that now I mean but I think that I think as a child at the end of the day you just want to feel accepted in your peer group whatever that peer group is whatever you want to be comfortable and that was something that I kind of always struggled with and it it was right around like I saw it in middle school I think in elementary school you're so young like it doesn't and then in, in junior high school is when you start to have these lines of delineation in terms of the different classes that you're in so that's when it started to become noticeable when you know girls would say oh she thinks she's white or she's uppity, she's, she, she talks white, and it became more pronounced in high school. So you, and really you just, to deal with it, you just kind of have to get over it. And I think that was one of the reasons, I mean, there are many reasons where, why I wanted to go to a HBCU, because I knew that I would be with a plethora of, you know, amazing African-American students, 
and I wouldn't have to feel that way. I, I would be comfortable, and that's kind of how I dealt with it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in when Michelle was sharing her story and just talking about, too, like how her parents, um, as well as her, her grandparents, and specifically her one of her grandfathers, Dandy, how they, you know, made sure that they, her as well as her brother, that they enunciated their words and all these different mm-hmm. things. And I could definitely relate to that because I remember growing up, like, you know, being an 80s and 90s kid, which is like, you know, all the slang and all that stuff is really cool. And so I wasn't really allowed to, like, speak, you know, in those slang terms. They made me, uh, you know, make sure that I was always speaking proper English, which, of course, I'm thankful for Mm -hmm. now. And I, I will say, though, I do still appreciate slang because I think that it, you know, is a way to express like certain things in a more, I guess you could say flavorful type of way. Um, But for me, like I would say probably elementary school as well as when I was going to like the boys and girls club or doing any of those summer camp type things, that's when I, you know, would encounter that question a lot. And for me, uh, you know, as a young person trying to reconcile it, it was, I think, like you said, it was perplexing because for me, it was just kind of like, well, I don't, I don't feel like I'm talking white. I feel like I'm I'm just just talking, talking. right. I'm just talking like myself. Um, and you know, and again, it's like, it's the way my parents spoke. It's the way, you know, my family spoke, you know, for the most part. So, um, but I will say once I got to middle school, which I'm, I will say, I'm so thankful. My, my parents actually, uh, made a decision for me in regards to the middle school that I went to because I got accepted into like a magnet, uh, academic magnet middle school. And um, I actually didn't want to go to that school because, you know, I didn't want to leave all my friends. Like I was like, I remember I was like in the fourth grade. So this is transition from fourth to fifth grade. And, um, but my parents, you know, told me basically and I got in we had good conversations about it they would ask me like why I like didn't want to go there of course the fourth grade mind didn't really have great reasons why I shouldn't go there but uh but I'm so thankful because I do feel like once I got to that academic magnet middle school now I you know I found my tribe you know I, there was um a lot of diversity there and blacks were still in the minority but you know I had uh, a lot of African-American friends who I could relate to. And, you know, I met like one of my best friends, you know, there. And it was just like, all of a sudden, no one was asking me that question anymore because we all, you know, wanted to succeed academically. We, you know, we were excited about learning. And, and so it was, it was nice and comforting. And so then from there, from middle school to high school, um, there was another academic magnet that was pretty much like almost like a feeder school. I mean, there was still a process for it, but most people who went to the middle school ended up going to the high school. So I would say pretty much fifth grade and on, I was really just able to like thrive with other like-minded students Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and asterisk African-American students who, you know, also shared my passion for learning. And then I didn't have to, you know, justify like who I was, but, um, but, one thing, though, um, actually come to think of it that Michelle touched on, so deviating slightly but not too much, is when she was talking about how when she went to Whitney Young and she, you know, again, met other African-Americans who, you know, were kind of at all different um, parts of or aspects, you could say, of the spectrum, even in terms of 
income level and how that was the first time that she heard of Jack and Jill. That was my experience as well. Like I, like, you know, uh, before I got to a magnet school, like, you know, I never heard of this program. And so I think too, even with that, you kind of, you know, that was also around the age where you really kind of start to understand class yeah. a little more. Like, who are these boys? <laughs> and what is this group? Well, and, and I will say, I, I, you know, I, I had friends who were in Jack and Jill and like, I, it was just kind of like, like you said, I, it brought a, I guess, more of an awareness because my family was definitely, you know, just middle-class family. I would say, you know, we lived in a house. My sister and I had our own rooms. So I feel like we were blessed, you know, but, um, and, um, but yeah, but just like that whole layer of like Jack and Jill and what's that? And like, Oh, okay. And like, you know, they would, of course the friends would report back on, Oh, this weekend we did this and that. And, you know, um, and it was just, I don't know. It was just, it was just kind of, I guess, more than anything different. It wasn't necessarily something that I aspired to be like a part of um but it was i just thought it was kind of interesting that michelle also like had that same kind of like revelation of what what is this program um so yeah but yeah i think like you said it it really is um i mean i'll I'll put it this way as as we even think about our next generation like how (laughs) like really for it just to become more normalized and, and that, you know, that little brown girls who, you know, speak in just basically standard English terms won't be getting the question, like, why do you talk white? Are you trying to be white? <laughs> like, like you know, culturally that we can, you know, um, hopefully get to that place. You know, my, my nieces and nephews, my children, you're, you know, same for you that we, that no one's having to yeah. answer that question. But I thought it, it was, you know, like I said, again, that was something that really resonated with me when um, Michelle shared that story. So I wanted to chat about it a little bit because what I'm finding, um, especially in adulthood, is that a lot of my friends have had that experience. Oh, yeah, I had it at, um, from, like I said, from junior high up until I went to college. It was... I thought I was white, or I thought I was different, or I, and I'm like, well, I'm just me, you know, I'm right. not trying to think that I'm anybody, I just want to be Ivy, and right. that's kind of where it ends, so. So, going along with that, that kind of leads to, to my next question. So, one of the themes that Michelle constantly addressed throughout the book um, especially towards like the the first part of it was um, the concept of being good enough, and so during her freshman year of high school is is really kind of where she starts to describe having that feeling of inadequacy, and then when she was a freshman at Princeton, it kind of echoed slightly um, as well, and so. While, you know, everyone at some point in their life may struggle with this feeling of being, quote unquote, good enough, um, it seems to present itself in very unique ways for black women, um, especially when we've ascended to certain like levels or we're invited into certain mm-hmm. rooms. And I think that Michelle's stories really teach us like ways to overcome it. And so I just want to ask, what are some ways that you have overcome um, this feeling, especially because you're an African-American female engineer? 
Um, I think, and it kind of goes back to our, to the last question a little bit, and I think the feeling of not feeling good enough is because, again, you're kind of the only one, and you're not seeing uh, brown faces in some of those positions. So when you are in those positions, it's, well, am I good enough? Um, how did I get here? Do I deserve to be here? Now that I am here, am I trailblazing for all the people that's coming behind me? Let me make sure I'm not in here messing up. Am I representing for all the black people now that I'm in here? There's unspoken rules that, well, your mom tells you, well, you can't be going in there doing X, Y, Z. You know, so it's, I think at this point in my career, I kind of just lean into it. Um, but earlier on, I, I have definitely had uh, those feelings of, gosh, you know, uh, I don't, how, you know, I'm not feeling like, like not good enough, but just, again, going back to the comfort level. It's always this sense of being uncomfortable because you are the only one. And just as humans, you want to, you know, you want to fit in. And as, you know, a brown girl being the only one, you're always, you feel like you have to assimilate all the time. And that, again, is such a, a heavy, a heavy burden. But at this point, you know, like I said, just I just lean into it. I show up, I do my best, and you know that's that's it. You you you're prepared. You're you don't want to uh, reinforce any stereotypes, and you just have to be your most authentic self. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, agree with you on all fronts there. I think especially, like you said, at this point um, in our careers, I think um, early on, one thing that I recognize, like you said, about kind of being the only one in the room um, is I started to really see it as an opportunity to, you know, like you said, maybe change a certain narrative that they had um, about African-American people, um, you know, and and just through bringing my authentic self and um, and, you know, again, having that connectivity, sharing stories about like where I, you know, where I come from, et cetera, um, how you really are able to add value and and kind of bring whatever that unique value that you have, you know, to the table. And so I really saw it. And again, like you said, it's like, I, I cannot be the spokesperson <laughs> for all black people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I can just show you, like, again, like, especially thinking about I, I led and I actually, I, technically speaking, I still lead like a very just diverse workforce. And so recognizing that I'm leading some people who are, you know, significantly older than me, who, you know, may have grown up in the, you know, the civil rights era and may have been on the other side of it and, and you know, have now kind of uh, maybe come to a more uh, progressive stance on said things. But then at the same time, you know, I might also be leading someone who 
it could almost be my peer in terms of age or leading someone younger than me. And again, some of these people, depending on where they come from, because we work for such a diverse company, um, maybe they just haven't had a lot of um, exposure. Exactly. To um, to people, you know, in general who are diverse um, and specifically, you know, African-Americans. So if just through like being who I am and like you said, now there are still some of those unspoken things like <laughs> like <laughs> that we we just know like, OK, I can't do that. And even recognizing, too, that. Uh, as a professional, there are going to be, you know, um, so the, the question of am I good enough? Absolutely, yes. Like, that's why I'm in the room. That's why I was selected. That's why they hired me. And yet you still have to anchor yourself in this place that you understand that there are certain things that your peers can do who uh, who are Caucasian normally. Um, I mean, there might be some other diversity there, but just saying traditionally speaking, uh, you know, um, so something that maybe one of your Caucasian peers can do um, that you understand that I can't do that same thing and get away with it. So, and it's, it's one of those kind of unspoken things. Like my mom didn't sit down with me with a list of things. Right, right, right. But there's just this, you know, and you kind of learn that as you go through your career. Correct. Yes. And you just kind of sit back and you observe and it's like, well, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to get away with that. Or I probably wouldn't be able to show up work at work late, you know, three or four times out of the week. So it's it's just one of those things where, yes, you are good enough, which is why you're there while you're in the room and, you know, just lean into it and be your authentic self. And, um, that's how people learn and they grow. And this world is going to continue to become more diverse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, as far as that, like, you know, kind of going back to the book, the, the, point in her life where she, you know, kind of was questioning whether or not she was good enough, which was in high school. Um, I think, again, for a a lot of people, um, you know, that is kind of, you know, just adolescence itself, you know, and, and for me, I can say it wasn't necessarily having anything to do with like income or, um, anything like that, you know, um, I think it was just more of those for me personally, like just those like kind of more external things like I don't feel pretty enough you know mm-hmm. I'm this and that you know just all of those things that you you know kind of encounter so once you're able to kind of get over those things as you grow into uh, an adult um, and of course insecurities etc are still going to present themselves um, but um, but still again being able to to recognize your your value mm-hmm. um which of course as cliche as it sounds but you know truly does start internally and um so i would say even for me there was a a role that i um that i pursued pursued with the company that kind of had more of a public relations aspect to it and um and i just remember like when i you know, became a finalist for that role, I was, you know, very um, humbled, first of all. Um, but also that, you know, of course, that's kind of when those things uh, like kind of I'd never start creeping in. creeping in again, just because it's like, wow, you know, so I felt astounded 
that, you know, <laughs> that I was even selected. But, you know, it wasn't all about, of course, the external piece. I, you know, what had gotten me in, to where I was was, you know, the interview process and, and again, being my authentic self. But now once I'm there and in the room, if you will, it's kind of, you know, those internal things of like, you know, here I am, this like, brown skinned girl like am i am i who the company wants to Absolutely. represent their brand Absolutely. so moving on to uh, our final question uh this is kind of a fun one so before barack there was david and kevin or at least this is who michelle talks about in the book <laughs> so david was like her her boyfriend um, from high school, kind of her summer love, if you will. Um, and, you know, if you, if you read the book, you'll see um, when Michelle broke up with him, it was a little savage, just, just a little bit. Uh, but, but, you know, she does go on to explain that he represented the past and, and, and kind of that, you know, context of it. And so when she transitioned to Princeton, like, she fully transitioned. Mm -hmm. I'll just put it that way. And then uh, when she was at Princeton, she she had a a boyfriend named Kevin uh, who played football. And um, he he graduated from Princeton with um, what I... Based on the context, um, we can assume was probably like a pre-med mm-hmm. type of degree because he was supposed to be going to med school. But then he decided that he wanted to be a mascot for the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she called this a swerve. And so so basically, you know, we have all had a Kevin <laughs> In our lives, whether, you know, it was a, a boyfriend or, or just a friend who you, you know, felt like was being impractical. Um, even like, you know, even one of her best friends in college, Suzanne, who was one of her roommates who, you know, kind of <laughs> was very free spirit. Um, but, you know, ultimately, Kevin, um, he did go on <laughs> to be a doctor And, you know, but when she was just reflecting on the experience, she felt like she may have judged him unfairly because she's a, uh, she, you know, considers herself or consider herself to be very much a box checker. And so, you know, I could relate to her on being a box checker as well, Um, you know, because, you know, she, she talked about that she'd always found comfort in having people's approval. So it was harder for her to swerve, which is why she ultimately ended up becoming a lawyer. And, you know, that decision is what connected her to Barack. So there was definitely some purpose in it. Um, But later on in the book, we see her struggling um, with fulfillment in her career choice. So I just wanted to ask you, do you think that we often get too caught up in like being box checkers and achieving certain things to allow ourselves to have a moment to actually swerve um, or, you know, deviate from our chosen paths or careers? Well, I think that a lot of that could be cultural because if you look at, you know, our parents' generation, they're, they're very linear 
in how life should be. You go to high school, you go to college, you graduate from college, you get you a good job, you stay on that job, get your benefits, your pension, whatever Christmas bonus they're going to give you. And that's, you know, you get married, you have kids, and that's kind of how life goes. And I think that's a generational thing. I think newer uh, generations are very, they're not linear in the way they do things. They may go on a job and stay a year or, or, you know, they just move around a lot more versus, you know, I think the older generation just values stability a lot more. And um, as far as Michelle and being a box checker, I think that we all want uh, some form of approval. You know, I, I can think back to when I was in college and one of my friends, she was in the engineering program. And I remember like her third year, she changes her major to French. And I was like, what kind of job are you going to get with that? Not, you know, but I'm thinking very... There's probably a million different things she could do with that. She could teach French. She could go live over in Europe. She could do, I mean, there's so many different things. But because I think we're kind of conditioned to just do everything one, two, three, A, B, C, I've even caught myself kind of judging people and, no, that doesn't fit into, you know, my life's plan. And um, you have to, I think what happens is we don't kind of sit back and think about some of those things until you lose a job. And you're like, well, maybe this was, I'm supposed to go a different direction. Or um, something tragic happens that kind of just forces you um, down a different path. But for the most part, People like stability, and they like routine. And so naturally, um, you know, it just is comforting to kind of know, like, your your steps in life are kind of, like, outlined. You know, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this next, and I'm going to do this. So I think we all kind of get caught up in what we think is the right journey. But, you know, life kind of happens, and... You have to kind of just let God, he always has like a, the, whatever plan you think he has, you have, he comes in and he changes that plan for you. Amen. So. Amen. Yeah, no, I, um, I agree. I think too, like you said, it, I, there is a cultural element to it. And, uh, there was an episode of blackish, um, actually this most recent season where, you know, um, if you, if you watch blackish, um, so the oldest son, <laughs> junior, um, he took a gap th- year, yeah. which, you know, I, I thought the show did a great job kind of, you know, uh, addressing that particular storyline because uh, again, to your point, I think it is very cultural. Like I, you know, could not have imagined when I graduated from uh, high school 
taking a gap year. I mean, I don't even think that was a thing during our age, or I put this way, or at least not again in our in our community. You know, so um, so yeah, and so but um, but you know, you're you're absolutely right. I think that we are kind of given this particular path, Um, and. For me, I mean, I, I can say, you know, overall, I still, like, feel happy. I feel like everything came together kind of the way it was supposed to. I, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, but I came to school here in Florida at FAMU. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, go Rattlers. Um, and But, you know, I came down on a, a full scholarship, a presidential scholarship, and um, which was a blessing. And I, I remember being very focused on keeping said scholarship. Um, which, you know, I, which caused me to, you know, again, like not (laughs) deviate too much (laughs) here or there. Um, but to really, you know, make sure that my, my grades, uh, stayed where they needed to be, et cetera, because, you know, that was, you know, that was kind of my, my golden ticket, if you will. And so, um, or not to mention the fact that, your parents are probably sacrificing and doing all of these things just so you can be in school. Correct. So it's like, okay, I spent all this money and now you want to be a swim instructor? What? And you, I paid all this money for you to go to get an MBA or business degree? Right. It's just, yeah, it's very much cultural. And, and and some of it is a little bit personality, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have uh, our, my siblings. We're all not quite the same. And me and my oldest brother are a lot alike. But my youngest brother, he kind of like a little bit of a free spirit. And, you know, I think that's just his personality. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, um, you know, for me, it was like, okay, my parents sacrificed. They helped to put me through school. I also got a scholarship as well, but it's more, there's more expense that's involved going to school than just like the educational piece of it. And I wanted to make sure that I lived up to my end of the agreement. Right. Yeah. And I think too, for me, like, um, as you were, as you were talking, I started thinking even, so I did. I was in the business school and I, you know, I got my master's and everything, I guess where I went off the beaten path just a little bit is in terms of my, my career. It still very much deals with business, but I like, um, I just remember a lot of people were, um, like they would do internships with pharmaceutical companies and in banks and stuff like that. But I chose, um, to do internships that were more in the, um, hospitality industry. And so, and that's, you know, basically where I have built my career and, you know, and enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, and then I think too, even within your career, um, as a box checker, you still kind of find those ways to still take risks and, and kind of go after, Mm -hmm. um, different things that stretch you. Um, and also too, to be honest, even like doing this podcast, I would say this is definitely not something on a box checkers, uh, list (laughs) traditionally, just because it is, you know, still very much a, a growing, um, we would call it, uh, a side hustle. Right, right. I like to call it my passion project. And, uh, you know, so even my, like, it was one of those, you know, evolutions from, you know, from when God spoke to me to do it. to Googling it, to, you know, researching, et cetera, to actually, you know, of course now here we are, but kind of going through that process and even like talking to my, 
my parents and specifically my mom, like explaining her what a podcast is and then from, you know, kind of seeing her like now she's on board and she likes to tell me, oh, I heard such and such say they have a podcast, you know, because, you know, watching this show or news or whatever it is. So, um, but, you know, still it's kind of like, but now are you making money? You know, like. (laughs) (laughs) We always go. Right. Right. You know, so. um uh, which, <laughs> which shameless plug? I mean, if there's someone who wants to sponsor Brown Girl Radiance <laughs> podcast, like I receive it uh, in the name of Jesus. Uh, but you know, and it's okay to be interested in different things. Like right. we're not monolithic. Correct. You know, we are very. You know, you can be interested and in, you have your career, but you. Um, kind of have interest in other things. It's we weren't designed to just we weren't designed to just walk this straight and narrow path. So, yeah, no, definitely. So, so speaking of being a box checker, so um, you know, one one thing. So now we're kind of transitioning just a little bit from becoming me to becoming us. And uh, Michelle talks about, you know, her her relationship with Barack, which, again, you have to read it. Like, (laughs) no one can do it justice except, you know, for her to tell it in her own words. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he in in many ways, like, kind of helped, well, helped to some extent kind of release her from all that, you know, box checking in in terms of the point in which he came into her life and, and just kind of the way that their relationship blossomed. And, uh, so for me, one thing that I, uh, took away, uh, from their relationship, and I don't know that we'll have time to dive into all of it, um, at this moment, but, um, I really appreciated, you know, once they decided that they were going to be together, but it was going to have to be a long distance relationship. Um, I really respected uh, the way that Michelle put her foot down um, with Barack in regards to uh, talking on the phone because Barack, you know, you'll, because of his upbringing, et cetera, he told her that he wasn't a telephone kind of guy he liked to write letters which sounds super sweet and like romantic but let's face it not very practical (laughs) um so um so you know so basically you know she told him and now mind you this was before like there were cell phones and uh text messaging and all these things so so truly like but she basically told him that he was going to have to become a telephone kind of guy or else she might find another guy who was willing to listen to her, you know? So, um, and I, I think the reason why that resonated with me, uh, is because, um, I've, there've been points in my life where I've just been like, I'm not going to do another like long distance relationship, but, you know, in kind of thinking about her and their process. And again, this was pre all of the resources that we have available. It actually restored my faith <laughs> in long distance relationships. <laughs> No, long-distance relationships can work. I mean, there's so much technology now. You can FaceTime. You can, you know, there's so much out there. Um, I think that there has, you do come to a point where someone has to make a decision, though. Like, someone's going to have to move somewhere. Right. But I think her point to that was 
she put her foot down if you if if he wants to be with her this is this is what it's going to be and if he didn't then he could hit the door and i think a lot of times we you know know your worth and if they're interested they will step up it's it's as simple as that and if they don't if it wasn't worth it anyway so well and ivy would know because uh she does have quite a bling there (laughs) (laughs) on her ring finger um and uh she's actually getting married very soon very soon um the end of this month actually so we're very excited about that and uh ivy i just want to say i really enjoyed chatting with you about becoming uh, we knew going into it again this is why she told me we need a whole season um and you'll hear other uh women as well but um as you can see we've only kind of scratched the surface um in terms of just the 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 depth of the the stories and experiences that Michelle shares and I think you know one of the beautiful things about like reading this book is that no matter like you know what your background might be there's something in her story that's going to connect with you absolutely and if you haven't read the book go out and get it right now yes and i have i have the physical book um i bought that you know whenever it hit the shelf i i i had to have it but um but i actually as we mentioned earlier did end up listening to the audiobook so um i would highly recommend that as well and it's it's been um it's been really nice because when you hear the story in her own words i think it's a little more um impactful and then, um, and then it just kind of allows you to to take the book and kind of you know mm-hmm. now you want to kind of pour into it. Now the book does have you know pictures, et cetera, that you can see um, as well about some of the the people that she discussed as well. But but yeah, we're just we're just saying we understand people are busy, <laughs> so um, the the audio version is definitely a way to feel like you have Michelle with you. <laughs> yeah, I think I finished the audio version probably in a couple of weeks just yeah. driving to and from work yep exactly yeah so it was something that i actually looked forward to right yep and then sometimes like i would get in the house and i'm like oh wait like i gotta like we gotta finish this chapter so then i'd have to you know put her put her on the the bluetooth <laughs> speaker <laughs> so that she could her voice would just resonate you know um in my house but yeah seriously great great read um read listen <laughs> however you choose to consume it and ivy Thank you again so much for it. Thank you for having me again. Please make sure you get at least one friend to subscribe to Brown Girl Radiance podcast so that we can continue to celebrate and shine together. Feel free to send me an email or hit me up on Instagram at Brown Girl Radiance podcast on Instagram as well as at Gmail. Brown Girl Radiance podcast is available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio app, as well as CastBox.